quiet and silent just to let our, um, our hearts and our minds, our attentions catch up to our bodies in this room and to prepare to hear the word today. Father in heaven, we need you so much. Experience our world and everything it, it offers and everything it is, and it just draws us to you, to our knees, and we need you in every way. And you have responded to that need in full. We celebrate that fact. We love you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in this Advent season and going through kind of the Matthew Gospel's uh, Christmas story. And it's a season, as we keep mentioning, of Hopeful anticipation for God's arrival, for his initial arrival in the birth and birth of Jesus. And then we kind of, by rehearsing that experience of longing and waiting for the birth of the king, it anticipates our longing for the future when all the promises of God will finally become fulfilled and Jesus returns. And so that season, though, of longing and hopeful anticipation is not without addressing and naming the darkness. And that's what's beautiful about Advent season is that it's not a false sense of comfort and hope. It fully addresses all the reasons why we are longing and waiting in the first place and invites us to lament even as we have hope. And so we're going to see that in full today in this story in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 18. So I invite you to read along with me. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to that time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. The word of the Lord. We're in this time of year right now where it gets dark insanely early. Before dinner time even starts, it's 4.30. I'm just getting back from walking my dog, and the sun's already going down, and it's dark. And usually about that time, someone in our house will look outside before we even eat dinner as we're imagining, hang on, how many more hours do I have before I go to bed? And we'd say, I can't believe how dark it is out there. When I read this passage, I've been a serious student of the Bible for like 16 years. I've read the whole thing front to back a dozen times. I've taken classes on Matthew, other classes on the Gospels. I've had Greek classes where we read lots of chunks of Matthew. And still, to this day, when I read this passage, it sends shock through my heart. I read it and I think, I can't believe how dark it is out there. And I read it again this year and was thinking through it. And usually when I first think about King Herod slaughtering babies in this village. I imagine, I'm not sure the size of the village, and so I always imagine like a huge number. Just the quantity of carnage, carnage is what weighed on me. 
And I would just imagine numbers that are beyond my comprehension. Similar to when I hear that almost 800,000 Americans have died of COVID, I imagine, like, that's a number that's too big for me. But when I was reading this week, I discovered that this village, this town, this region would have only had about 1,000 people. And so you think about total quantity of baby boys, less than two years old, there probably couldn't have been more than 20 in the village. And while that should lead me to like rejoice and be like, oh, not too many numbers, it almost broke my heart in a new way. Because that means that those people wouldn't just be like numbers and wouldn't just be like nameless faces that we would see on a website that we don't know these people. But I imagine in that village, you would know the families. You would know the babies. You would know the boys. You would know the children. A thousand people or less, you are aware of what's happening. And I imagine they're thinking, when this has happened, I can't believe how dark it is out there. And things now on this side of the cross, Jesus has come. He's been risen from the dead. Joy to the world. We think it's okay. And yet we look at our culture now and think, I can't believe how dark it is out there. This week, Nine years ago this week is the anniversary of when a very disturbed man entered into an elementary school and executed 20 children and six staff. And I remember that week, and I remember, I think I heard this passage preached that Sunday by my former pastor, and we're just confronted by that reality and think, I can't believe how dark it is out there. And that world hasn't changed much since then. This past week, another disturbed boy brings a gun to school and kills four of his classmates. Almost 400 mass shootings this year already in our country. I can't believe how dark it is out there. Where is God in the face of that? Where is he? This is a season now where we're supposed to turn towards joy. That pink candle is supposed to represent joy as we wait in hopeful anticipation. And so we have to wonder, as Christian people, where is there joy in the face of such darkness? can't believe how dark it is out there, but where is God and we're supposed to have joy? When we read this text, we see at the very heart of the Christmas story is a, a brutal reality of our God become human being in the face of such horrendous darkness, where babies themselves are being murdered. Like I say, that's like the worst possible darkness I can fathom. If you think about death being like the core of darkness in our culture, and then death of loved ones is like an extreme pain. Death of children is like your own children is like among the most extreme pains. And if you go to like death of your own children by the violent hands of another image bearer of God, that has to be near the pinnacle of human darkness, right? And yet, if we can imagine that we have a God who enters into that, we have to imagine then that he can relate to and engage with and experience and overcome every form of suffering. If we have a God who can jump into the fray of that darkness, he can bring something to all the sufferings that we experience. And we need that. Because Christmas season, for all of you normal human beings, like me too, is not only filled with uh, laughter and joy and celebration. For many people I talk to, it's a time of pain and darkness, right? A time of of upheaval, a time of division, a time when family problems come to the rise, a time when we're stressed out to go home, a time when we remember loved ones who we long to gather with for these important holidays who aren't there with us. And we need a theology and a God who can deal with that, who says something about that reality, because if we don't, then we are perpetuating a kind of faith that is dripping with honey and does not get to the reality that most of us face as human beings, that it is hard, it is dark out there, and we need a God to respond. But this will show us the paradox of joy, that God is still there. 
So where it, what is the actual path of joy? We see truths revealed in this passage that I want to bring out to demonstrate how God brings joy in the face of the darkness and that he promises to overcome it one day. And so let's kind of pull these out one by one. Next slide, Barrett. So the first answer question is where is God in the darkness? And what we see right in this passage is that God is present right in the thick of the pain. If you would imagine like a coming king, if humans were totally aware of what was about to happen, hey, God was going to become a human being, you know how extremely protective they would, he would, like we would, human beings would become for such royalty? We would go out of our way to make sure we enforce supreme protection. And yet when God chose to enter into this world to, to rescue us, to enter into the fray and respond and, and, and pull us out of that, he did not enter into, he was not born into power. Right in the thick of it, right when he was born, he is born into a region of chaos and darkness and violence where King Herod was a ruthlessly violent individual. He did not bat an eye to kill even his own family members when he suspected that they just might be a threat to power. And so King Herod wouldn't have batted an eyelid to have to kill a bunch of babies if he thought they just might be a threat to his power. And it is into that environment that the king of the universe chose to enter into humanity. Not born into power and protection, not born into comfort or pleasure, not born into insulation and protection. He was born with all the human vulnerabilities that we have when we're born. Totally incapable of taking care of ourselves, totally incapable of of providing for our protection. And so here he is, the king of the universe, as a baby boy who has to be whisked away from a violent man in the middle of the night by the adults around him. Adults that would have been freaking out. It doesn't matter what some angel said to them a year or two before. It's like, we got to get out of here. And so before our king could walk or talk or feed himself, he's still making a mess. He's probably still on team no sleep if he's like the one or two-year-olds that I know. And before he is, can even do that, he is a homeless refugee having to flee his land in the face of a violent king. That is our God. He enters right into the thick of the darkness, right into the pain. And if he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us, he has to. What's the point of entering with full comfort in a world that has misery? What's the point of, of entering into a world with, with installation and pleasure into a world that does not have that? That's not what the world that we live in. And so if he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us, he has to enter in right in the thick of the biggest threats of pain, the biggest suffering, because that's what we personally experience. And that is the beginning of the path of joy. Biblical joy is not emotional. It's not about feeling, although sometimes it can, it can, we can experience those feelings. Biblical joy is also not circumstantial. It's not happiness where we have the right circumstances around us to ensure that we feel good and that we enjoy ourselves. Biblical joy is relational, relational joy. And relational joy can happen even when circumstances are not good. If you can imagine your own darkest periods of your life when you've been in the most pain and you look back at those times and imagine something good from it, usually that something good has to do with a human being who just sat with you in it. They didn't immediately try to fix it or correct it. They just sat there with you in it. And that's what, how our God is, too. He sits there with us in it. He's the opposite of what I, I remember one time in Cincinnati, I was at this 
the gym that I went to, and I was building a relationship with the guy that uh, led, that worked and owned the gym or whatever. And uh, I've tried to be vulnerable as a pastor. I don't want to be like, you know, have it all together. And so he's like, how you doing? And I was honest with the question. I was like, man, I've actually been having some emotional mental health struggles, but I'm excited because I'm getting some counseling soon. I think it'd be really good for me. He was like, you know what? I don't know. Have you ever thought about prayer? I'm like, nah, bro. Man, thank you for that insight. I had not thought of that. Let me write that one down. So I had to walk away. But we don't have a God like that that's like, hey, y'all, y'all ever think about just praying your way out of that? He enters right in to the darkness. And so we have to banish the scenes of Christmas with, of imagining all is calm, all is bright, joy to the world, and everything is happy and dripping with honey. It's like, it's into like the thick of violence, and he has to be whisked away. He's a homeless refugee that is on the cusp of being murdered if his, if his frail parents cannot get him out of that land. That is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1 says that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's like he sets up a tent, the language would say. He comes and dwells and sets up a tent among us. That's like when he sees the darkness and the pain, the suffering, the threats, he's like, yeah, that sounds like a good spot for me to camp out. When he meets Zacchaeus, this is my favorite biblical story. And Zacchaeus is a dirty man, too. He's suffering. He's lonely. No one likes him. He has no friends. No one wants to touch him. No one wants to go to his house. That's another kind of human darkness that we also have, too. And no one wants to be with him, eat with him, talk to him. And when Jesus sees him, he's like, I'm coming to your house to eat today. I love that man, inviting himself over. Because he wants to go where the suffering is, where the misery is, and be right there. That's the start of relational joy. He moves in that way. And what's he do once he gets there, once he starts to get to the, the presence of that pain? He gives us the words to respond when we have no words. Matthew says, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And I'm not even getting to the words of that yet. I just want to start with the fact he gives us the words in the first place. I imagine Matthew writing about this story and having no way to communicate what's going on. It's like, how do you put into words anything beyond this just sheer facts? And when we imagine the Bible being written, it's so nice and clean and pristine the way we have it with our leather bound. They, I don't know what kind of efforts they make to put this shiny little ring around the pages, but that sounds like some work there. But it makes us imagine that maybe the Bible was produced by people that were like totally abandoning their humanity and God just like gives them the words without them thinking about it. I don't imagine that at all. When I read it, I think it's fully human and that the people writing it don't abandon their emotional struggles and very human tensions as they write. And I, but I imagine God's in it the whole way, and when it's finished, it is fully inspired in his word. But the actual production process does not betray their humanity. When Matthew is searching for the words for how to respond, and I imagine him groaning, as Roman 8 says, groaning's too deep for words, searching for a way to communicate what must be felt by those people in Bethlehem and by the people of God as we can uh, think about and contemplate what is happening. He remembers and searches the scriptures and knows there's a God who affirms that feeling and gives language to it. That human beings, when we are sitting with someone in pain and want to be understood by them, we know we have groanings too deep for words, but it means so much when we who communicate by verbalizing words find the words to speak or a listener finds the words to say that can kind of affirm our experience. It's like, oh, they get me. They see me. So that relational joy adds up when not just God's willing to be with us, but when he gives words that match our feelings and we say, oh, 
He put words when I couldn't think of them. He gave me words when I wasn't even safe to name what I really did feel. And so before I even get into the content of those words, it's just important to name that reality. That this book, if we would take our time to actually read it, is actually extremely human. It does not hover above the human experience. It enters right into all a whole brain, broad range of human experiences and human emotions and invites us to hear from God's word who can see and feel and experience that and affirms much of how human beings feel as we respond to it. We have to trust him that he knows that and can give us language for it and to describe what is actually happening. So then let's get into the content of those actual words and continue to press into this path of joy. Next slide, big dog. God affirms our grief and wants us to express it to him. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so when Matthew is writing this gospel and searching for words to describe his experience, he recalls a scene from the prophet Jeremiah about 600 years before this. And Jeremiah is writing this at a time when he had been prophesying of the exile that was to come, that God was going to finally bring judgment on his people for their idolatries, and he was going to whisk them away. And Babylon had come and ransacked their whole town, destroyed Jerusalem, and took them out of there with them. And when Jeremiah is trying to describe uh, what's happening in that situation, he kind of gives a voice from Rachel, who is the mother of all of Israel. So Jacob's wife, Rachel, they have 12 kids that they oversee, and then, that she has some of them, and the mistress has, it, has others too. But those 12 become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jeremiah, God gives Jeremiah words where he's imagining Rachel, the mother of all Israel, weeping and lamenting, refusing to be comforted because of what is happening to her children. But that affirms that there are real darkness times in human experience where we are not only affirmed to have such grieving and wailing and outcries and lamentations and refusing to be comforted, but even like an, an affirmation that we should. Like that should be the response. It's almost a call to live into and express that, to cry out, to lament, to grieve. God affirms our grief. And that affirmation is his way of saying suffering does not belong here. Suffering is not God's true core nature. Evil and suffering and sin and death is not by like God's purposeful, he hopes it would happen. These are alien features in God's good and beautiful world that it is a divine mystery as to how we get here where we experience them, but all we know is they do not belong and they will not be here permanently. And so because they do not belong, suffering is very real and can and even must be grieved. That grief is a testimony that we trust that this is not of God. He is not for this. His desire is not to harm babies or bring about any kind of sickness, suffering, evil, or death. He's not for that. And so he affirms and even calls us to totally grieve it, which is also a tremendous gift. That God doesn't meet us with that whole like, oh, everything happens for a reason. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, at least this silver lining, at least you got your other children. Don't worry about that thing. Oh, don't be sad. 
Please don't be sad. Be happy. Smile. Turn that frown upside down. You should be happy and not think about this anymore. Aren't you over it by now? That happened yesterday, last week, last month, last decade. You shouldn't feel this way anymore. Just move on. It's time to move on and get over it. We don't need to grieve and be sad. We need only a celebration of life. So let's sing happy songs, eat fried chicken, and pretend like nothing's wrong with the world. That's not the God we have. He's like weeping and loud lamentation. And for this temporary moment, you should refuse to be comforted because this is an utter tragedy. And that is like, oh, that is the words I need. And if you've sat with someone who has experienced the tragedy of losing a child or bearing ranges of tragedies and sufferings beyond that, they don't want to be told, just get over it, it's going to be fine. They want you to say, that sounds terrible and that is awful and that's not okay and this is worth lamenting. And those kind of words that God gives for this moment is like, yes, that is what I feel. I don't want to be comforted right now. I want to be sad. He's like, yeah, you should. And when he, we read the Psalms, like the, the people of God's prayer book, the majority are like that. It is not like only happy and praises and all is well. There's like loads of grief and lament. Now, a good portion of them make a turn towards hope. But there's even one in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 88, where the end of it is, darkness is my only friend. It grieves and laments, and the close of the psalm is, darkness is my only friend. And I just imagine that God made sure that stayed in there. Like, you would think God would be like, oh, that seems a little sad, a little dreary. We need to turn towards hope. Maybe just add a verse in there that it's all going to be right. But he lets that passage make it in when the Bible is being finalized in the, the Bible we have today. So every Bible we have today has included in it a prayer for the moments in our human experience where it feels like darkness is our only friend. And that is an affirmation that God calls us to, and we even feel safe for us to express that to him. He longs for us to feel that safe with him to express that to him. That's that relational joy. That even in the face of heartache, you have a God who says, let's sit in that for a second because that's not okay, and I'm with you in it. I affirm your right to grieve it even call you to it. Sit in that, dark, that grief and lament to me because I can take it. That is a gift to us in the face of that suffering. So he affirms our grief, and that's what we do in Advent. It is a season of lamentation, a season of longing, a season of reminding God all the reasons we need him to act and move now. It is a recognition that he will meet us in that pain when we have trust that we can pray to him and he will respond. Which gets to my fourth point here, and final point, that God will finally overcome this at last. Get on my next slide, Barry. God promises to overcome all this suffering permanently. It is not just the God who sits with us in the grief, who says, yeah, you should feel bad. That's what we do, because we can't control things. So we will sit in the moment of grief, affirm a person's feelings, empathize with them, but we, in actuality, have no ability to control beyond that point. But God does. He sees the suffering, he sits with us in it, he enters in right in that moment. That is the space in which he desires to dwell with us, and from that place, he promises to make it right. And even the selection of the words that Matthew uses affirms this. So in first century Jewish world, people were just entrenched in the Bible. Jewish boys, when they were like elementary age, would be called to try to memorize the whole Torah. And the ones that kept going beyond that would be called to memorize like the whole Testament. 
That's quite a bit of scripture memorization. They were called to do it, and everyone else was just entrenched in it. Imagine a culture that just doesn't have access to that much literature information, but still, just like we do, craves it and is interested in it. And the people of Israel were the people of the book that were obsessed and combed over scriptures, and they knew them really well. And because of that, it was often a tactic of first century Jewish scribes to just reference one a verse, and it wasn't just take a verse out of context, how we sometimes will do, where it's like here, verse, there, verse, everywhere, verse, verse, that sounds nice, let's put that on a pillow and store it in my room and not think about the rest of the context. They don't do that. They will say the verse, and they're kind of trying to invoke the whole passage and kind of bring to a reader's mind everything else around it. And in actuality, that verse in Jeremiah is found within a passage that is surrounded by hope. And it just has that one moment of darkness in it. Let's check this out. Bring it up to my next slide, man. Let's read these verses together. Here, this is seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declare it in the coastlands far away, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, as a shepherd of flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and herd. Their life shall become like a water garden, and they shall never languish again. Next verses. Then shall the young woman, women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope. For your future, says the Lord, your children shall come back to their own country. That was within a whole chapter of almost only that kind of theme. And it's within that that God says, he, it says, thus says the Lord, and he affirms a grievous response because he is making all those promises to a people who has just been sent into exile. And even as he's making those promises, he affirms that they still in their present state are grieving. And yet he affirms that and also overwhelms them with promises of restoration. And we need both. That God says, yes, what you're experiencing is bad and it is not okay, and I'm doing something about it. And one day they will never, ever languish again. Because the God who can and will do something about it has done so. And that's why from the beginning of Christ's birth, the shadow, or the cross, is a shadow over his life from the very beginning. From the very beginning, his life, violence is chasing after him. He has upset the power structures of that day. And when people do that, they experience the same fate that Jesus did. And he eventually went to the cross. And that's the whole point of his life. It wasn't just to be a moral example. He didn't teach us good things. From about halfway through every gospel, it is him running to Jerusalem to go die. That is the point. He tells his disciples again and again, we need to go to Jerusalem because I need to die. And he does that in order to let all the suffering and evil and sin and death ultimately be exhausted onto his very body. To take on all the pain and darkness he was willing to sit in with us. He empathized so much, not just saying, yes, I understand, here's some language for it, but to the point of owning in every single way 
all the things that we could ever do or that have ever been done to us. All the sins we ourselves have committed, all the things that we've been victimized by, all the tragedies we witness, all the chaos that looms in our culture, and the darkness that we know and the stuff that we don't even want to know about. God lets all that be exhausted onto his very body on the cross, and when he raises from the dead, he permanently dispels his powers. He's able to do something about it, and he has. Amen. And that is also what sometimes makes it still hard. Because we're like, well, hang on, I'm kind of frustrated. If he's capable of healing, he promises he will, he's going to do it, then why am I facing this right now? And there's never a satisfactory answer to the why, ever. You ask that your whole life, and you will never feel like, oh, that makes sense, and I'm now satisfied. (laughs) It's like a permanent outcry of why. And we are met to that cry, not with an answer or a theology, but with a person. A person who has entered into the darkness with us says, I'm not going to tell you all the answers and give you the reasons and give you everything happens for a reason right now. It's not going to have a nice bow to it. I'm going to overcome it right now, and permanently it will be no more. And for this time right now, we then get to be a people of hope that look toward that future victory with confidence and certainty, not a wish. It's not a hopeful wish for the future, but with confidence and certainty that the battle's already been won. Those powers which wage war on our hearts and want us to be destroyed and our four darkness have been permanently banished. And one day they will be no more. And so in that time between times when those darkness forces are still present, we experience them, we see them, we greet them, but we know that their time is coming. They will not get the last lap. God has already won, and it is a promise that we wait on. Come, Lord Jesus. We need him to come now. Let's pray. Our Father, in the face of such darkness in our culture, we look and think, where are you? We need help to trust that. That you are here, that you care, that you're invested, that you're concerned, that you grieve even as we do, but it also you can overcome it. We have no other hope or recourse, but yet your promise is enough. May we cling to it. May you stamp eternity on our eyeballs so that in the face of such darkness, we feel confident in our hope in you. Your cross, your resurrection is enough, and we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray.